Welcome to Standout, where entrepreneurs share what they've done to become media darlings. I'm your host, Cheryl Tan of CherylTanMedia.com. On this show, we talk about the power of publicity and how you can use it to grow your business. This is episode number 31. Want a resource to help you get started attracting media attention? You can download my free press release template at CherylTanMedia.com forward slash podcast. If you're in a crowded industry, how do you stand out and attract more of the right clients? That's what Maryland lawyer Elliot Wagenheim was struggling with seven years ago. His solution was to overhaul his marketing plan and business model, and his business looks very different today. Today, Elliot has a regular column in a regional business magazine, Smart CEO. He is a contributor to the Huffington Post. He has a podcast and... Oh yes, he's a pretty busy lawyer too. In this episode, Elliot will discuss how this shift in marketing has had a dramatic impact on his business. Elliot Wagenheim, great to have you on Standout. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank you for asking. <laughs> You're an author, a speaker, and a longtime attorney. I want to start by delving into your business just a little bit. Sure. The first thing that I have to tell you is that I'm a business attorney, so I focus on small to mid-sized businesses. But that said, I mean, I can tell you, yes, that's a niche. So I differentiate myself. I'm not a personal injury attorney. I couldn't do a divorce or adoption to save my life. But you still can't swing a dead cat without hitting an attorney, even a business attorney. <laughs> so you've got to differentiate yourself. And um, and I, I figured that out. Um I'll just tell you if I can, just take two minutes. I'll tell you how. Um, there's a, but first I'll ask you this. Have you ever heard of the author Dean Koontz? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. So Dean Koontz, and for your listeners who maybe haven't, he's a very popular author. He's like Stephen King light, yeah. although he would probably hate my describing him that way. But um, anyway, he has a character that had a mantra that was don't lie to the dog. And what he meant by that is people lie all the time. Right. Not malicious. I mean, it could be I'm feeling great when really you're actually a little under the weather or business is going terrific when really you lost a client. You're worried about payroll mm -hmm. um, or, of course, that outfit doesn't make you look fat. You know, whatever that that lie is, people lie all the time. But when this character was alone with the dog, he couldn't lie. He would ask himself questions and he couldn't lie because who's the dog going to tell? And. As dumb as it sounds, I thought about that a lot. And so anyway, I found myself, it was towards the end of the year um, in 2009. And like a lot of people who own small businesses, I have my own law firm. And, and like a lot of them, I was thinking, well, what are my plans for next year? You know, and I, I thought, I want to increase my income. And I picked the number 10%. I'm going to increase my revenue by 10%. Don't know why. I just thought that sounded good. 10% seemed healthy to me. So I'm, there I am, I'm walking the dog. And walking the dog is one of my favorite things to do because I leave my keys, I leave my cell phone on the uh, island in the kitchen. Um, I'm not supposed to be doing anything else, right? I right. can't be asked because I'm already doing something productive and I'm walking the dog. So I'm talking to myself as I do. And I was saying, okay, well, do I have a plan to increase my business 10%? And you can't lie to the dog. So I had to answer no. My plan was, because I called myself a referral or a relationship type business, my plan was 
that I would go into the office every day and pray that the phone would ring with the right person at the other end of the line. <laughs> and hope, as we know, is not a strategy. No. <laughs> and so I realized I had to become a marketing-centric organization, even as a lawyer. I had to differentiate myself in the general public. So that's how I kind of went from this um, industry where there are a thousand of us per square mile to someone who focused on getting the word out and, and standing out. What year was that, Elliot? What, you... 2009. Ah, 2009. So End of 2009. Would you say that in your industry, it's a little unheard of to market in this way? I mean, maybe now in 2016, more and more people are doing it. But in 2009, um, and even in some industries and in some niche, uh, in some niches, it is unusual to uh, write blog posts and be featured in the media, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, you have to, um, first of all, lawyers are horrible marketers, generally speaking. So it's it's kind of here, I'll be politically incorrect for a, a minute. It's like the Dan Quayle debate strategy, right? All you have to do is put together some coherent sentences and you've already exceeded expectations. Um, and that's the way lawyers are with marketing. You know, if you just do a little bit, you're like, wow, you know how to market your lawyer. Um, <laughs> but but it is it is somewhat unusual. Um, now, you get advice all the time of doing a blog or right. getting on, on local media or doing something. But the difference between getting that advice and saying, oh, yeah, I know I have to do that and actually doing it is is just miles apart. Absolutely. So, okay, let's go back to 2009. You are talking to the dog, which is very deep, by the way. That's really good. <laughs> you're, you're doing work. You're talking to the dog. You're, you're walking, getting some exercise. And you say, self, I'm going to create this marketing strategy. Well, what did you do? You, you probably had staff, right? Right. Yes. So you probably had staff. Yes. Um, what was your first step to create a marketing plan that um, revolved around getting your expertise out there when you're probably busy with a lot of clients, probably uh, doing all the things that you need to do to get the light, you know, keep the lights on, that kind of thing? How did you kind right. of get from zero to blog? Well, and, and you're exactly right. I mean, as they say, it's awfully hard to build wings while you're flying, right? Yeah, so that's kind of what I was worried about. But um, <laughs> the first thing I had to do was figure out, and this is so cliche, but it's true, who I wanted to market to. Because I had to figure out, well, who are my best clients? So the knee-jerk reaction might be, when you're talking about who is your best client, might be, well, they're the client that pays me the most money. And, and maybe that's true. Maybe they're the ones that are the most profitable. Maybe they're the ones, that, maybe your best client are those that have interesting matters and allow you to do your best work. Maybe your best clients are those that allow you to have the most impact, whether it's on the community or social justice or uh, give you a sense of, of um, accomplishment. Maybe your best clients are those where they're not as profitable, but they're on autopilot. They require the fewest touches. Mm -hmm. Or maybe they're the ones that are the most appreciative. What, whatever it is, you have to figure out, and this is what I had to do to answer your question. I had to go in and I had to wipe away all preconceived notions of who I thought my best clients were and figure out. And so this is the way I frame the question. If I could look down my entire client list and I could be granted one wish to clone one of these people a hundred times over, who would it be? I love that. 
And um, so I figured that out. Okay. I said, this is the person I want to clone. Okay. Now that I know that, I wanted to figure out, well, where does he live? You know, how do I reach him? What are his interests? What are his hobbies? What does he care about? Because the advice that I got a long time ago from a good friend of mine is, Elliot, you're not your clients. They don't think like you. They don't talk like you. They don't worry about the same stuff. You've got to be able to see the world through their eyes. And so I was thinking about that. And so the next thing I did after figuring out my best client, I asked him out to coffee. And and really, yeah. to be fair, it wasn't just my best client. There were about five of them. Mm-hmm. I asked him out to coffee. And I said straight out, look, if I had a wish granted, it would be to clone you. I want five of you. <laughs> How do I do that? What do you? So I would find out, what do you care about? Mm. What what don't you care about? You know, I have all this stuff. I'm like, yeah, we don't care about that stuff. This is what we like. Yeah. Was that surprising when you got those answers? Like the things that you thought were important to that client really weren't? Um, certain of the answers were surprising. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. And so they they lead to different ways of marketing, which I can get into. But but um, it also gave me an idea, not just to figure out what they like, but also if I disappeared tomorrow, where would they find my replacement? Because those are the places I have to market. You know, if if they if they would go, for example, to their accountant to get a recommendation for a really good business lawyer. Right. then I'd better form relationships with accountants and figure out what shows, what media, what books, whatever, that have accountants in their audience. And so I wanted to start reverse engineering the um, process of getting my best client, and that's what I did. Ooh, Elliot, I like that, to find the referral sources and just get to those people first. Because just in case, right, something were to happen to you, where would your best clients go to find someone just like you. Oh, that's right. good. Really, really good. So you talk to your clients and you come up with all these great ideas. They say to you, I want this and I want that. And then how do you take that information and take that to the next level? Well, I'll give you an example in my business model and then in uh, on the PR and marketing side. Mm. In my business model, um, it came down, there was one conversation that I had in particular with the client, and it wasn't even during one of these coffees. He had called me and he said, um, he had a question, and we were talking, we were joking around about uh, whatever it was, the NCAA basketball tournament, the Ravens prospects, whatever it happened to be. And he started, he chuckled a little bit, he said, hey, listen, um, uh, I know I'm paying you by the hour, so I, I better get down to business. Okay. So we talked about whatever issue it was. And um, at the end of the conversation, he said to me, hey, you know, I'm sorry about that crack about billing by the hour. I I know you're a lawyer. I know that's what lawyers do. And there's nothing you can do about it. It just frustrates me sometimes. So we hung up. And I remember pacing around after that conversation because I was thinking to myself, here's one of my best clients. I wish I could clone him. And he doesn't like my business model. And he said to me, there's nothing you can do about it. But I own a law firm. Why, why isn't there something I could do about it? Right. So I created something in our world called Empty Hourglass, which is a very small fee for unlimited phone calls, unlimited emails, a lot of that just to check in or I have a quick question or that sort of right. thing. And then I went out to coffee with him. And then I said, this is what I mapped out. What do you think? And he worked with me 
on putting together a program that he would like. And I said, look, I'm not trying to sell you on it. I don't care whether you do it or not. I want your advice. So we put together the program and it changed my business model in many fundamental respects because I went to my best client and said, build something you want. And then I went out and marketed that Mm -hmm. because, you know, when you market something, your marketing, it seems to me, should be like a dog whistle, you know, Mm -hmm. where it goes unheard by 99% of the carbon-based life forms out there. (laughs) But that 1% will perk up and they'll look around. Those are the 1% you care about. It's a dog whistle to the the frequency that only your best clients can hear. Um, So that's what I wanted to find. So I changed my business model. And then I, after those coffees and after those conversations, I went to, I thought about how am I going to appeal on a mass scale? Because there's only so much coffee you can drink. So um, there's a magazine in our area called Smart CEO. And just like the name implies, it, um, it appeals to small business owners and, well, business owners of all types. And I thought, I wonder if I can get a column in there. And so I started um, through LinkedIn and through social media. I found out who, and and through reading the magazine, learned who the editors were, but found out who they knew, who could give me an introduction. And I would meet with them and I would talk with them and I would invite them to events. And then it took about a year because it was a long sales cycle, but um, there came a time that one of their columnists had left. She had been writing for a while. She was really good. Her name was Julie Rubin. And she was appointed to be a judge. She's a lawyer. She was appointed to be a judge. And so um, they came to me and they say, hey, Julie um, is no longer able to write the column. Would you be interested? Absolutely. So it was through relationships. And I've done that. Um, I also have a story about becoming a HuffPost contributor, but I'll save that unless you want me to tell it. But <laughs> but it's relationships. You know, it's it's reaching out and finding a side door to places because they never would have accepted me if I just wrote into them saying, I would like to write for your magazine. You know, <laughs> they don't care. A million people would like to write for because, but that's just saying, you know, how would you like it if somebody called you up and said, hey, Cheryl, here's what you can do for me. <laughs> You'd be surprised We're, how many people do that, actually. But I love <laughs> what you said, Elliot, because that's what I talk to my clients about. It's not, I want to be on the Today Show today. Uh, it's more like, let's create some relationships with local media, which you've done. And for you, it, it took a long time. Like some people wouldn't have the patience of a year to talk with people and uh, back and forth emails and events and things like that. But for you, it was a long tail game. And so when eventually that opportunity came, they called you right away. And they probably said, yeah. oh, I know that guy. Uh, he's a great guy. He'd be a great columnist works out really right. well. It, it, it didn't take, um, it didn't take, I didn't have to submit uh, a bunch of columns and whatnot. And every once in a while during that time, they would say, Hey, do you want to do a column on this? You know, so there were, yeah. there were some small successes along the way, but yeah, it, uh, sometimes it takes a long time for a fire to catch. Yeah. I would love to hear about the return. So you're, you know, you've got the whole marketing wheel turning. It's all different compared to what you were doing pre 2009 you get this smart CEO column, right? Mm. So how, how does that help your business? How, if someone at home or is listening or watching and they're thinking, is it really worth the effort? Elliot, is it worth the effort? 
I think so, yes. I, I think if somebody is listening, in my experience, I would disabuse them of the notion that, geez, all you have to do is have the smart CEO column, and then clients or customers, they just beat a path to your door. You have to fight them off with a stick. <laughs> the phone won't stop ringing. It wasn't like that. But especially when you have something in my industry, in my industry, it's not an impulse buy. Somebody is trusting me with something very important to them, which is their business. And so it's it's a relationship. And so every when they see me in Smart CEO, it's a validation tool. When they go to my website and they see testimonials instead of bragging, it's a validation tool. When they see me on, on Huffington Post or they hear my podcast or and they know where I am, then they know that um, they can get an idea of what my philosophy is and whether they can talk to me, whether they can understand what I'm saying, whether they understand my approach. And then I, I came up with a series of no-risk ways to, to deepen the association, uh, meaning that people hate being sold, mm -hmm. right? So if you right. walk into the showroom, if you walk into a car dealer, if you walk anywhere, and you have a conversation where you know the person on the other side is expecting you to write a big check, Nobody wants to go into that conversation. You will, but you don't want to go into it uh, unless you absolutely have to. So I wanted to, and in my business, um, if somebody really likes me at a networking event and hears my podcast, that's a big chasm between that and sitting in my conference room and writing a check. So I created a series of events. I would bring in speakers um, that I thought were interesting to my audience goes back to my conversation yeah. about, you know, with my um, empty hourglass architect, co-founder architect. Um, what would they find interesting? And I, I had this series of things that people sometimes have lunch and learns, but they're um, inconvenient because they're in the middle of the day. And I wanted to combine the um, substance of a lunch and learn with the informal discussion of a happy hour. So I got some craft beers, some sandwiches, and I call it a drink and think. And I have Ooh, it. I like, like that. A, yeah, I like puns and rhymes because and <laughs> I'm basically four years old. Um, but so I call it a drink and think, and I have it maybe nine times a year, not quite monthly, when I have a good subject. And I bring in people, and it's, of course, free. And nobody's going to try and sell them anything. I'm not Putting it, but they get to come and we get to talk a little bit, and they're not hearing about law and all of that. But but they get comfortable, and that it's been the whole combination: the smart CEO and the Huff Post and the podcast and the drinking things. It all works as a unit to make it easy to establish a relationship. I have to hear that Huff Post story. Okay, how did you reach okay. out to the Huffington Post <laughs> and and their? welcoming you with open arms. How did that happen? <laughs> okay. So I decided for whatever reason, I wanted to become a HuffPost contributing author. And, but, and so I looked it up, I Googled it and there was this, this website that you can submit your column to the Huffington Post. But I found out that the website gets like 15,000 submissions a day. And I don't think God himself could get noticed in 15,000 <laughs> columns a day. But there's always a side door. So what I decided to do, I thought to myself that the way to short circuit that would be if Ariana Huffington invited me to join the Huffington Post. But the problem was, I don't know Ariana Huffington. I, and I had no, 
no reasonable chance that I would run into her in the circles that I navigate in my life. <laughs> so I read her book and I listened to every interview. I watched every YouTube interview and commencement address that she gave. And in one of them, uh, one of the commencement addresses, she gave out her personal email to the graduates. So I wrote to her and I referenced her book, uh, a chapter in her book, a specific passage, and I referenced that commencement address and exactly what she said. And I related it to a story in my own life that really had been the foundation of one of my blog posts, but I didn't say, as I said in my blog, I just related it. I said, this is why it resonated with me. And I gave a paragraph um, that was personal to me. And um, I never mentioned the blog. I never asked her for anything. I just said, I doubt you'll ever read this email, but I wanted to say thank you because your words resonated with me. And three days later, I got an email from Ariana Huffington. Wait, you weren't and pitching anything? Like you weren't saying, I, I, I want to write for you? Oh, <laughs> I pitched nothing. Oh, wow. Um, I got an email from Ariana Huffington and wow. she said, and I still have it, it's a, uh, a couple years ago now, but she said, um, if you're interested, I'd like to add your voice as a contributor on Huffington Post. Wow. And I said, absolutely. And she said, I'm copying my senior editor. You know, and they have senior editors, to be fair. They have senior editors in like a thousand different niches or whatever. But so I'm copying a senior editor in, in this niche. It was lifestyle. And I wrote back to her and I said, that's great. And not to look a gift horse in the mouth, but could I write on business topics as well? And she said, <laughs> sure. And so we went back and forth a little bit. Oh, my and, goodness. <laughs> um yeah, I was I was amazed by that. And so, yeah, she copied her senior editor and they gave me my portal and my password and the instructions. And I found out that because she invited me, I expected I would submit a blog, right? And their senior editor would look it over and revise it and let me know. And But apparently because she invited me, it bypassed their editorial steps so that if I hit publish, it just goes out. Oh which is a mixed blessing, but right. I didn't figure that out. Um, anyway, so, so yeah, so that's the story of how I, I started writing for HuffPost. That's a good story. So you're, if, if you walk around town um, in your circles, then people yeah. say, some, sometimes they say to you, hey, I, I read your article or I see you everywhere, that kind of thing that comes out of their mouth? Sometimes. I mean, I don't want to over overstate it. I'm not any kind of famous or whatever. When when I walk around town, my hometown of Baltimore, the only thing on people's minds is why aren't you Michael Phelps? But um, <laughs> but really, you know, if people know who I am, now I have an unusual name. It's Elliot Wagenheim. So it's not Joe Smith or something. So if I'm at a networking event or someplace where I have a name tag or I get introduced, then a lot of times the benefit is not sometimes people will say, hey, I saw your HuffPost thing or I, I, I heard your podcast or I saw uh, your smart CEO column. But sometimes it's more subtle than that. Sometimes it's, hey, I know you. I've heard of you. And if you do your branding right, it's a positive connotation. And, you know, you can refresh their memory, but they may not know right off the bat that, oh, right, you wrote that scintillating article on something. I, I have the chance to talk to CEO groups sometimes. So they're the owners of their companies. And mm -hmm. I talk about some of the same things as far as the importance of creating content, the importance of your story, that kind of thing. And they'll mm -hmm. come back and say, oh, my goodness, it's one more thing to do. It's, yeah. it's it, do I have to hire somebody? Um, how is this possible? So what would your response to be, be to that? 
and then maybe relate it to whether when somebody meets you at a networking event and they go, oh, I've heard of you. Like, does it mean new business? Does it mean a continued relationship? Is it worth it? Is it worth it? Basically. Well, the, for the first thing, um, just to unpack that a little bit, a lot of times CEOs will say that I have to hire somebody. And the problem that I have, and it turns into my question is, if you had um, a fantastic prospect for you sitting in your conference room, would you really send in that 20-year-old millennial who just graduated with a marketing degree just because she or he knows the buttons to push on Facebook and understands what Instagram is? Mm -hmm. Because if the answer is no, if you wouldn't send that person into the conference room to speak on behalf of your company, then don't give them the keys to your social media engine either. Mm. Um, you can They can help you, okay. but if you want to go in, the content has to be something that you stand behind. And, you know, I have an advantage, I guess, because I like to write. Yeah. It, you know, and if you don't, and I get it, there are a lot of people for whom that's a chore. Um then it becomes much harder. And there are people out there who are great ghostwriters who take the time to learn the industry, learn your company, learn your philosophy, and that's great. But I, I wouldn't hire somebody who just, to, to be your voice, right. just because they like social media and they're good at it uh, for, their, for themselves. So um, I get that it's another thing to do. Right. Um, and with everything, you have to choose your priorities. But you're, you're allowed to choose, but you're not allowed to complain about your choice. So that if I look at you and I say, I really have to get in shape. I really have to start eating right and cooking some meals at home and going to the gym. Okay, that's fine. But if I don't make the choice, if I make the choice to, to um, have bacon double cheeseburgers every night and not to go to the gym... That's okay. It's my choice. But I'm not allowed to complain as a victim of the universe that I just can't seem to get in shape. So when I talk to people and they say, geez, you know, I'd love to market. I'd love to have a blog. I'd love to do this, but it takes so much time. That's fine. But you've made your choice. I think that you can make it a priority. And in response to your question, does it, does it get me business? The answer is Twofold. Number one, it satisfies something in me because I like to write hmm. and I, I like to communicate with my community and get my viewpoint out there. So I think I'd probably do it even if uh, it didn't get me direct business. But it does get me business because it allows me to, as a turn of phrase, to stand out. It, it, um, I'm not homogenous, even though, as we said at the outset of our discussion, that you can't swing a dead cat without hitting a lawyer. Um, so I get a chance to say who I am. And, and here's the last point, um, that I'll make on this question. One of the most important things I know is, is fit, you know, is this client, is this customer a fit? And when you have your writing and your philosophy and your approach out there for everybody to see, to some extent, it's self-filtering because a lot of people who might wander into my conference room, not knowing who I was or what I did, maybe to them, they don't hear that dog whistle. And maybe to them, they're like, you know what? He's not the guy for me. And that's fine. But a lot of times the people that do ask me, hey, you want to um, grab lunch sometime? Or can I see you about something? They've already self-filtered. They know who I who I am and what I like. 
Nice. Nice. How can people learn more about you? How can they get your podcast and connect with you, Elliot? Well, the best way there, there are two things. One is my, my website is wagonheim.com, W A G O N H E I M.com. And we just, um, published a book and I mean, just on Friday, uh, it went up on Amazon. It's fire aim ready management. Um, fire aim ready is, is the art of starting with the end and figuring out how to manage your company best with the end in mind, straight from Stephen Covey's number two, but telling the story. So it's about storytelling. Look, I've been a business lawyer for almost 30 years. I have seen small business crash and burns, and I've seen some of the best entrepreneurs in the nation. And so Fire Aim Ready Management is the first of a four ebook series that kind of gives the secrets to what I've seen with a front row seat at great business and horrible business. <laughs> Very nice. Well, we're going to link to that in the show notes for this show at CherylTanMedia.com. I thank you for sharing your journey with us. Very, very interesting and and really valuable advice for, for folks and niches like yours, really. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity to speak with you. I really enjoy that. Yeah. Well, before we go, I have one last question. And you've Shoot. talked about it, but it's one I ask everybody, is what makes you a standout? You know, there are a lot of things that I don't do well. If I skied every single day of my life, I would still never get above a blue square, a medium skier. Never. I have a marked absence of, of gross motor skills. But the one thing that I think really sets me apart um, from those in my profession is that I'm, I can see the world through other people's eyes. I can... I'm empathetic, I understand, and I make a real effort to understand what they need, how I can help them, and I don't do anything unless I know that their interests are first and foremost, uh, because I know one thing, and that is that the golden rule is wrong. The golden rule says treat people how you would want to be treated, when really you should treat people how they would want to be treated, mm -hmm. and that's the art, and that's what I do well. Very, very nice. Elliot, thank you so much. Thank you. Want to catch the show notes for this and past episodes? All of the standout shows are in one place at CherylTanMedia.com forward slash podcast. This is episode number 31. The best way to get this show in front of more listeners is to subscribe to and review the show on iTunes. Thank you in advance for your support. Until next time, I'm Cheryl Tan.